Now, sometimes our culture takes a word or phrase and uses it so much that it becomes commonplace and kind of loses its significance. One of the words that this has recently happened to is the word epic. Everything is epic, especially with all of our youth. We got epic music, we have epic outfits, epic hair, epic face palms, epic movies, epic shots, epic wins, and of course, everyone's favorite, the epic fail, right? Now, because this word has become so overused, it's kind of lost its significance and grandeur and and its, its epicness. But, but today, we're going to be studying a truly epic story in Scripture that points to what I think might be the most epic name of God, Jehovah Sabaoth. The Lord of Hosts. And we're going to study 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to take a look at the story of David and Goliath. And it's my hope that by the end of our time together, we'll all very clearly see our epic God. So as you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to pray. And once you get there, then I want you to pray along with me, okay? Pray for me. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are our epic God and that you make yourself available to us, that we could study your word, hear your truth, and apply it to our lives and be transformed. And I pray that that is exactly what would happen today. We would hear your truth. You would move in our hearts. Lord, I ask that you fill this place with your spirit and speak through me. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we begin to look at 1 Samuel 17, we're actually going to jump ahead to the climax of epicness in this story. And we're going to begin by looking at the epic speech that David gives to Goliath right before their battle. Now, you know that one of the mainstays of movies with big battle scenes, right, is, is when the hero goes before all the troops and gives the epic speech and tries to rally them for to courage and bravery to go and face this insurmountable foe. Well, it's, it's kind of the, the same here, except for one really important difference. David has no allies at all. He's out there by himself, and he is giving this speech directly to the enemy. And as we turn to verse 45, which is where we find the speech, you can, you can almost hear the music building in the background. And you can, you can almost see the camera panning up to David as he stands fearlessly and defiantly before the giant, listening to his taunts. And then, with holy indignation and righteous resolve, he delivers one of the most epic speeches in Scripture. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That's just awesome, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but right, but right now, I feel like I used to, before I was going into a wrestling match, like, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm all pumped up right now. And, and what I want us to see from the very beginning here is what pumped David up and made him ready for action. What made him confident in this, in this overwhelmingly lopsided fight. I mean, he makes it very clear right at the beginning of his speech. He says, I am standing before you in the name of who? The name of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. David, David wasn't there in his own name or in his own strength, but he was there in the name of the Lord. And that gave him confidence. See, God, God had revealed to David an epic aspect of his character. And it gave him confidence to face the biggest, baddest, toughest, meanest foe around. Now, in order for us to understand this, we've, we've got to understand what the name Jehovah Sabaoth actually means. What does the Lord of hosts mean? We've, we've already studied Jehovah. We know that Jehovah is the covenant-keeping name of God. That, that's a strong tower. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord, the name of Jehovah, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. That's, that's Jehovah. That's the first part of this compound name of God. And the second part reveals a deeper aspect of our covenant-keeping God. Sabaoth. So, so what does Sabaoth mean? Well, well, the root word for Sabaoth means to go out and wage war. That's the root word of Sabaoth. While the actual word Sabaoth itself means armies or hosts. So, so we see here that Sabaoth is the military name of God. It lets us know that the Lord is the commander of the hosts of heaven and earth. All of the stars, all of the angels, all of the armies in the entire universe fall under the command of Lord Almighty. And he fights, he goes out and wages war on behalf of his people. This, this is a part of his covenant with his people. Jehovah becomes our defender and protector, and, and he leads us to victory over our enemies. He's in control. He's sovereign over all things. And he'll fight on behalf of his people when the situation warrants it. Which, if you heard that little proviso at the end there, you're probably wondering, okay, well, when does the situation warrant the Lord fighting on my behalf? When will the Lord intervene and fight for us? 
Well, unfortunately, there's, there's no clean-cut black-and-white answer. Because if there was, then we'd all try to follow those steps so that, okay, I did this now, God, now smite this guy. Right here. Just, you know, lightning bolt thing. Go. Right? Doesn't, doesn't work that way. There's, there's no formula for when the Lord of hosts intervenes. But, but, if we look at how the name Jehovah Sabaoth is used in Scripture, we begin to get an idea of when the Lord of hosts will fight for his people. See, when we study the uses of this name, we find that it's the last name of God revealed in the Old Testament. It's the last name of God revealed in the Old Testament. But once it's revealed, it becomes the most common compound name of God used in Scripture. Over 270 times it appears once it's actually revealed. So once the people of God learn this aspect of his character... Well, they go running to it over and over and over again. Why is that? Well, because the people of God face giants all the time, don't they? Well, the very first use of this name actually occurs in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. That's the first time it's used. And it appears in verse 11 of chapter 1 when the distraught... Yet very godly woman of the Lord, Hannah, fell on her face, weeping before God and pleading with him to deliver her. See, Hannah, Hannah was barren. She, she couldn't have children. She was childless. And this caused her husband to go out and find a second wife who was able to bear children. And she had lots of children. And that second wife, this rival to Hannah, Loved to rub Hannah's face in it. Loved to mock her and taunt her because of her barrenness. And ridicule her year after year after year. And finally, with nowhere else to turn, Hannah appeals, sobbing and broken before the Lord of hosts. And God fought for her and won the victory and blessed her with a son, Samuel. And he became the last of the judges and a mighty prophet of God. And, and this little story about the first use of Jehovah Sabaoth, really, it sets the stage for how the Lord reveals himself through this name and when he fights for his people. See, in, in almost all of its uses, Jehovah Sabaoth is the name of God that his people run to when there is nowhere else to turn for deliverance. There's nowhere else to go. He's it. Jehovah Sabaoth is our defender and deliverer in times of trouble. When, when we're in, in a dire crisis and all of our options have run out, he's the one we go to. Jeremiah chapter 20 says, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. That's Jehovah Sabaoth. You know, it's, it's nice 
to think of our God as a loving and kind and gracious Heavenly Father. And He is those things. But sometimes we just need a dread warrior, don't we? <laughs> sometimes we need a God who's going to kick butt and take names. And thankfully our God does that. Now I think it's okay for me to say that. Because David recognized that. David saw it, and he called upon that God. You know who fights more in the Bible than anyone else? God does. God fights in Scripture more than any other person. And you know why he does that? Because he fights for his people. He fights for his people. And that's an encouraging thing for us. Because we all have struggles that are too big for us to handle on our own. We all have giants in our life that will crush us if we try to stand under their weight in our own strength. But that doesn't mean that God is some magic warrior genie who we call upon to win all our fights for us. We've got to understand that. I mean, you can read all about how the Israelites tried to do this a couple chapter later in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And you'll see that the Lord allowed them to be decimated by the Philistines because they thought they could just use God's name. Put the Ark of the Covenant in front of them and we'll win every battle. It's not how it works. See, in that story, the Israelites, they weren't concerned with the glory of God. They were only concerned with their own glory. With getting more land for themselves to control. And right here lies a really important piece of this name of God that we have to understand. The Lord of hosts, he will fight for his people and he will deliver them. But he doesn't do it for our sake. Ultimately... He fights and wins for his sake, for his glory, and for his fame. We have to understand that. We can come before him, but we don't do it just because I need to win this fight. We do it because, God, you will be glorified if you show yourself in this situation. David, David knew this truth. And if you look at David's speech... His, his epic speech in verses 46 and 47, you'll see that David declared to Goliath that the reason David would win is because God wanted to show his glory to all the world and to remind his people who were cowering in the hills who God was. It wasn't so David could become some big shot giant slayer. David could care less about that. So, so we've got to see here that if our motivation in coming before the Lord of hosts isn't to defend his honor and glorify his name, then, then we're looking for a genie in a bottle, not Jehovah Sabaoth. And you know, this is a hard truth, but it's the reality. God will allow his people to be defeated and go through struggles when they need to be taught a lesson or when they need to be punished for their faithlessness. Because it doesn't glorify God to reward a faithless people. 
That's what the world looks like. That does not glorify God. Thankfully, when we've been faithful and, and when we are coming before the Lord to glorify Him, and when we're at the end of our rope and there is nowhere else to turn but God, that is exactly the moment when He gets the most glory. The time when it would take a miracle to win the fight is usually exactly when the Lord of hosts shows up to the battle and emerges victorious. And that is exactly what happened with David and Goliath. So let's dive in to this epic story and see what it can teach us about the Lord of hosts and how the enemy is going to try to make us forget that our God is the God of angel armies. Now, because there's so much here, there's almost 60 verses in this chapter, I'm just going to kind of go through this narratively and tell the story. And we're going to look at key pieces of scripture as we go through and dive in. And after you leave the service today, I would really encourage you to go back and reread through the whole thing. Get the whole body of it. Make sure you're confirming everything I'm saying. And, and ask the Lord to reveal to you even deeper truths. And, and I call this a story, but, but this was a real historical event that actually took place about 3,000 years ago. And, and if you know anything about telling a story, you know that the first thing that you've got to do is set the stage and introduce the characters. And that's what we get here in chapter 17. In the first three verses, we learn that the armies of the Philistines, the the hated enemies of the people of God have gone up to wage war against the Israelites. And they have met the Israelites due west of Jerusalem in the valley of Elah. It's right along the border of Israel and Philistia. So they were fighting again over this land. And what's really interesting about this valley is it, it's kind of a perfect little area to watch a fight because there's hills all around them. And the armies of the Philistines were on the south, and the armies of the Israelites were on the north. And the place where most historians think this battle took place is only separated by about 150 yards. It's like really close. So if you can picture in your mind a football stadium, right? And on one side of the football stadium, you have all of the Israelites lined up. And on the other side of the football stadium, you have all of the Philistines lined up. And in between them is the football field, the long way. That's, that's about what you have right here. And out onto the 50-yard line strolls the antagonist, the bad guy, the Philistine, Goliath. And in verses 4 through 7, we get a description of Goliath. I mean, the guy stood just under 10 feet tall. 10 feet tall. That's, that's twice as tall as the tallest basketball players today. I mean, it, it, that's, that's like to the top of the screen behind me here. That's 10 feet, almost twice my size. I know I'm a shrimp, so that's not saying much, right? But, but this guy was massive. This guy was massive, and he wasn't just tall. He, he probably weighed about 500 pounds because 
The scripture tells us that his armor alone weighed almost 200 pounds. I mean, this guy was a, when you say he was a giant, he was a giant. His spear that he had was like a telephone pole. And on the end of it was a 20-pound arrow that would skewer anything. I mean, this guy was a beast, all right? He was a beast. Now, you might be thinking, all right, where, where would a man like this come from? Well, well, most Bible scholars believe that Goliath was a descendant of the Nephilim. The Nephilim were children of fallen angels or demons and women who had babies. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 6, specifically verse 4. Now, most of the Nephilim were wiped out by the flood. But apparently some survived because many had taken up residence in the promised land. And there are verses all throughout the Old Testament that point to this. In fact, it was these giants, or, or the sons of Anak, the Anakim as they were also called, that the spies that Israel sent into the promised land came across, and they looked at him, and they came back and reported to Moses, um, yeah, we can't take that land over. We're like grasshoppers compared to those guys. So, so these giants, they, they had been a daunting challenge to Israel ever since they first got to the promised land. And now, Goliath stood before them yet again. Another giant, this time the mighty champion of the enemy. And interesting historical note here, the practice of having champions from two opposing armies fight it out was actually a pretty regular occurrence. You see, instead of risking all of that loss of life, they would just send forth their toughest, bravest, most skilled warrior, and my champion would fight your champion, and if my champion wins, then my army wins. We get to share in your victory, and we become your masters and control your lands. That's what would happen. And right about now, we should be getting a picture of everything that Goliath embodies and represents. So, so Goliath, he's, he's the biggest, baddest problem that the enemy can throw at us. That's, that's one level of Goliath. We all face those giants. But, but on another level, on a deeper level, he also represents the peak of human achievement and pride. And he's, he's a picture of all that the world values and strives for and tries to be. And sometimes we fall for trying to be like, I want to be like that guy, that giant over there. Nothing can take him. And yet, on one level deeper, he's also an embodiment of everything that is anti-God. Really, a picture of Satan himself. See, Goliath is the champion of the enemy. And he wants to enslave the people of God. And in verses 8 through 10, he challenges and mocks the people of God. And therefore, he defies God himself. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. To the enemy had presented their champion, the giant Goliath. And the people of God had none that were willing to fight the giant. They all fled in fear. Not even their king, Saul, whose scripture tells us stood a head taller than all the other men in Israel. Not even he was willing to go out and fight the giant. And it was his rightful place to do so as their king. But he hid, cowering in his tent behind the battle lines, paralyzed by fear along with all the rest of the people of God. Here's a point of application for us. When I face that giant, and we can, we can think in our mind, we've all experienced them in our lives. Do I become so gripped by fear that it prevents me from being able to do anything? From moving forward, from making any progress? Do I become paralyzed because of the size of the problem before me? Do I just want to give up? Run away? Hide? How do I respond when the enemy appears before me and presents that big old nasty problem? Am I going to run away in anxiety, doubt, fear? If that's me, if that's been me, if that's me right now, then I need to get to know Jehovah Sabaoth better. How do I do that? I confidently put my trust in him to win the fight. In him to win the battle. Knowing that the Lord can win any fight. I get myself right before him. Because when we do that, when we can trust in our God to win those battles, we will begin to see him as the epic God that he is, who no giant can withstand. And in verses 12 through 25, we're introduced to a man who knew the epicness of Jehovah Sabaoth. We're introduced to the little peasant, David. The hero of our story. David was the youngest of his family. A lowly shepherd. The lowest of the low in society. People would look down on him and mock him for being a shepherd. And he spent all this time playing music and tending to his sheep. Some warrior that guy was, right? Pretty much the exact opposite of who the world would expect the hero to be. True, he had been anointed to be the next king, but Saul was in his prime. He wasn't going anywhere. And so David's job in that moment was to tend sheep and to run errands for his dad. Some king you are. But you know what? There's another lesson here for us. Another lesson about how Jehovah Sabaoth works. See, there are many of us who feel like we're called to greater things. 
I'm not where I should be. God wants me to be somewhere else. And we try to get there under our own strength, and we kind of push the envelope. But we see here that if we're unable to be content and faithful in the small and mundane tasks that the Lord calls us to, regardless of what our anointing may be, if we can't be faithful in those small things, how are we going to be faithful in the bigger tasks? We've got to show ourselves faithful where God has called me right here, right now. My mind isn't there. My mind is here, faithfully serving my Lord and Savior, my Jehovah Sabaoth. Because God loves to use those who we least expect to glorify his name. And it's those who prove themselves faithful in the small things that the Lord usually chooses to do his mighty works. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now David, David pretty much epitomizes that verse. And, and, and even more than that, Goliath, he was defiantly boasting in the presence of God, thinking himself to be invi invincible and mighty, unsinkable. So along comes David to bring food to his three older brothers who are fighting in the battle there. They're fighting in the army. And out strolls Goliath onto the battlefield at the 50-yard line, and he begins to mock the people of God and to taunt them and to defy the Lord of hosts. And David's like, um, are we going to do something about that? Uh, you guys are going to go and like shut this guy up, right? What's going on here? King Saul, where you at, bro? He probably wasn't that disrespectful. But he saw that something was wrong. Immediately, he knew in his spirit, there is a major malfunction here. And when no one steps to the plate, he decides, this isn't about me. Who's this about? God. This is about God. And he decides that he'll risk stepping out in faith in defense of the glory and honor of God. And in verse 26, we get a key insight into why David had so much confidence in Jehovah Sabaoth to deliver him in this situation. David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Are you kidding me? This guy, this uncircumcised giant, we got to catch the key word there. The key word there is uncircumcised. See, David knew that Goliath wasn't a part of the covenant. 
David knew that there was no protection, no divine promises on the giant. See, see, David saw this for what it was, that it's a spiritual battle between the Lord of hosts and the demonic forces that oppose him. This isn't merely some physical confrontation. There's so much more going on. David understood Ephesians 6, which says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where our fight is. David saw it. The Israelites did it. The Israelites looked at Goliath's size and strength and his armor and his weapons, and they cowered. David only saw one thing about the giant. He was uncircumcised. He was not a part of the covenant with my God. And therefore, he is not on my side, and he is not on God's side. He understood Romans 8.31, which says, If God is for me, who can be against me? That's not confidence in yourself. That's confidence in Jehovah Sabaoth. Israelites, they, they were overwhelmed with fear because they focused on the champion of the enemy and they forgot their covenant with Almighty God and the promises that He made to them. Oftentimes, we do the same thing. Don't we? We do the same thing. We focus on the giant that we're facing. It's strength and power and the difficulty that it's going to create in our lives. And we forget that we're children of God. I am an heir of the throne, a co-heir with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Lord of hosts is fighting on my side. We allow the size of the giant to eclipse the size of our epic God. Israelites saw Goliath. But David saw God. David saw the spiritual reality behind the physical problem. And we have to have our eyes open to that reality. Because sometimes God allows us to face giant-sized problems. So that we can see our epic-sized God. The enemy constantly tries to make us forget who we are. Make us forget that we're children of God and what it means that he's fighting for us. And he, he almost always tries to use our own insecurities, our own doubts, our own fears, our own fleshly failings. And oftentimes the people around us who don't know Jehovah Sabaoth to try to speak those lies into our life. And that's exactly what happened here with David. Once David decided that he would face the giant, he was immediately confronted by people who were supposed to be on his side. They were supposed to be on his side. In verses 28 through 37, we see this happen. First, we see David's oldest brother, his own brother, Eliab. He comes and he calls David a show-off. 
And he demeans him and criticizes him for even thinking he could face the giant. <laughs> and I love David's response here in verses 29 and 30. David doesn't argue with him. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't try to explain himself. He just says, uh, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another. David's like, yeah, whatever, bro. Go ahead, you keep down here. David brushed aside the foolishness of his brother, and he moved on. He knew what the Lord was calling him to do, and he didn't allow himself to be deterred from it. He See, here was what the devil was trying to do. The devil was trying to make it about who? David. The devil was trying to bring David's eyes down from on high onto himself. That's what the criticism was for. You can't do this, David. You're not strong enough. You're just trying to be a show-off. <clears throat> David saw it. And he said, I'm not letting you make this about me. This is so much bigger than me, Eliab. This is about my God, Jehovah Sabaoth. He chose to fight the giant instead of fighting the critic. <clears throat> We've got to have that same discernment because the enemy is going to try to distract us from the real threat, from the real giant, and get us to focus on ourselves and take our eyes off of the glory of God. Our adversary always has somebody to tell us it can't be done or that we're at fault, that the problem lies with us. And we can't become diverted to the smaller, insignificant battles that are about us. Instead of focusing on the battle that's about the glory of God. But it wasn't just his oldest brother who tried to get David to stop. It was also the king himself. The earthly authority over Israel. King Saul took one look at David and he said, You're too young. You're just a scrawny little shepherd kid. This... This is a giant bread for war. He's going to eat you up and spit you out. What are you thinking? And again, David's response is perfect. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David knew what the Lord had delivered him from in the past. He didn't look at himself because it wasn't about him. It's all about our Lord of hosts who fights for us. He's fight for us in the past and he'll fight for us again. David knew that. We need to know that too. He was confident the Lord would lead him to victory yet again. So let's step back for a minute. At a point, a little self-inspection here. How do I handle criticism? Do I allow the enemy to make it about me? And take my eyes off of the glory of God? How do I handle someone discouraging me from someone, from something that I know God has called me to do? Do I allow them to talk me out of things? 
Am I able to walk away and brush it aside? Am I able to hear their foolishness and not defend myself? Am I able to look back on what the Lord has already done and trust that he will do it again? Because that's who he is. He is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, trusting that he will keep his covenant with his people. To the enemy, the enemy is going to try to sidetrack us. We can't fall for it. And even if we're able to stay out of that, the enemy will just come at us from a different angle. That's exactly what happened here. Even after Saul gave his blessing to David, Saul still tried to get David to rely on human wisdom. In verses 38 through 40, we see Saul outfitting David with his armor and with his weapons. The way of the world. The wisdom of man. But David knew better than to rely on human wisdom. Instead, he relied on what the Lord had already equipped him with. The ability to sling a stone. We've got to see here, we've all been blessed with unique talents and abilities that the Lord has equipped us with in order to face the giants in our life. And and when we try to be something that we're not because that's what the world says we should be, or that's what the world says we should do, that's not following the Lord, that's following the world. We can't fall into the trap of putting on Saul's armor, trusting in the ways of the world and the conventions of man. When, When we face a giant, we've got to trust in the Lord of hosts. But listen, it doesn't mean that God's just going to strike him with a lightning bolt, and then that's it. David got up, and he picked his five smooth stones, and he walked out onto that battlefield ready for action. He was willing to mobilize. He was willing to use the gifts the Lord had given him. He wasn't just some little runt praying fervently to God to do something. He trusted in the Lord, but he knew that he had a responsibility to use what he had been gifted with for the glory of God. It's got to be the same way with us. The Lord fights with us, not without us. That doesn't mean that we really win the battle. He wins the battle, but we have to be faithful to bring our gifts to bear. And that's what David did. He he followed the Lord, trusting in Jehovah Sabaoth to deliver him by using everything that the Lord had already equipped him with. And he walked out onto the battlefield with a staff, a sling, and five stones. There, There was no hesitation. There were no second thoughts. As soon as he was ready, he approached the giant in order to put an end to the mocking of the Lord. David was confident not in himself. He was confident in Jehovah Sabaoth. And he boldly strolled out onto the field to meet the best the enemy had to offer. And after the giant mocked David in verses 41 through 44, David then delivered the epic speech that we read at the beginning of this sermon. And you know what? He spoke it right to the enemy. Directly to his face. I love this. I love that. I love David's confidence in the face of the giant. 
not in himself, but confident in the Lord of hosts. Because he knew the truth that the enemies of God will always be overconfident in themselves. They'll always trust in their own abilities. They'll put their faith in their own self-sufficiency and their false idols. Not David, not us, not the people of God. And David willingly took the taunts and allowed him to mock him. And then just spoke the truth right to his face. And he boldly proclaimed that the Lord of hosts would deliver this giant into the hands of God's servant. Not for David's glory, but for the glory and fame of God. And when the giant came rushing at him, enraged by the brazenness of this weak, pitiful little shepherd boy, David calmly stood there, slung the stone, readied it, and let it fly. And the Lord directed right to the mark. And down goes Goliath. And the people cheered. Yay! And just to prove that that just happened, David walks over, takes out the giant's own sword, and chops his head right off. <laughs> God's awesome. God is awesome. Love that story. And I love the epic name of Jehovah Sabaoth because it reminds us that some of the most incredible things that God will ever do in our lives will happen when we think our time is up. That defeat is inevitable. That we're at the end of the road. The giant has won. When the giant is charging at us. But that's exactly when the Lord of hosts is most likely to show up and deliver us. He waits until this point because then there's no doubt who won the victory. It's not in our strength, not in my skill, not in my intelligence, not my abilities, not luck. It's Jehovah Sabaoth, and he alone deserves the glory and praise. Amen? Amen. And here's, here's my favorite part of this story. The whole account of David and Goliath and the deliverance by the Lord of hosts points us directly to our epic Savior, Jesus Christ. See, just, just like ancient armies would send forth their champions and the victor would have their entire army share in the spoils, the same thing happened about 2,000 years ago. The champion of the enemy, sin and Satan and death, went forward and stood face to face with our champion, our Jehovah Sabaoth, Jesus Christ. Jesus faced the biggest, baddest giants of all time. And he emerged victorious over them. The greatest champion this universe has ever known. Praise God that Jehovah Sabaoth has decisively dealt a fatal blow to the enemy. So that we can proclaim, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? It's not here. I don't have to worry about it. And the best part is that Jesus' victory over death and the devil can be shared with every single one of us who put our faith in him. Every single one of us who would be powerless before the devil because of our own sin 
can share in the victory of our epic Savior. He can become our dread warrior because he's already won the battle over sin and death. God saved us who could not save ourselves. That's Jehovah Sabaoth. And he saved us from eternal death through his champion, our epic Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Jehovah Sabaoth. And he saved us for a life of joyful service and thanksgiving to our Lord. All for the glory and honor of his name. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is our epic God, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Let's trust him to be our champion today. Amen? Amen. Amen.